Welcome to TP Talks, PDBC's Global Transfer Pricing Podcast Series. My name is Dana Hart, and joining me today, I have Paul Tang, a transfer pricing partner based out of our PDBC Shanghai office, Cecilia Lee, a transfer pricing partner in our PDBC Hong Kong office, and Marjorie Zhang, a transfer pricing manager in our Shanghai office. Marjorie, I'm going to go ahead and hand it off to you to give us some background on what we will be discussing today. Yeah, thank you, Dana. Today we are going to talk about some China and Hong Kong transfer pricing trends and how these will impact taxpayers. We'll start with our China transfer pricing partner, Paul Tang, who will share with us a summary of recent China observations and outlook into the future. Then we will have Cecilia Lee with us, our partner, who will talk about a proposed legislation in Hong Kong, which is anticipated to have significant impact. All right. During the late 2016 to early 2017, China's State Administration of Taxation, or the SAT, has issued a series of public notices to regulate different transfer pricing aspects, including transfer pricing compliance, audit procedures, mutual agreement procedures, and advanced pricing arrangements. Paul, would you please first give us some retrospect on the China transfer pricing in the past year? Thank you, Marjorie. I would like to talk about the following dimensions for transfer pricing enforcement in 2017. First, documentation and compliance. Second, new TP rules released last year on TP audit. Third, mutual agreement procedure and APA. And last, M&Es involving their transfer pricing model. Firstly, documentation. The Chinese tax authorities increased scrutiny on transfer pricing documentation local file. Which should be prepared in accordance with the new TPD rules as released in 2016, i.e., SAT Public Notice 42. This year, the local tax authorities also started collecting master files from MNEs according to Circular 42. Right, and it seems that some taxpayers have already received some review comments from the local tax authorities、uh, after their submission of the documentation. What are the main review comments by the Chinese tax authorities? Yes, they did. The major concerns raised by the Chinese tax authorities mainly include overseas financial information and value chain analysis. China's new TPD rules require companies to disclose the financial statement of all the related parties along the value chain. However, we observe that not too many MNEs have disclosed such overseas financials in the local file. In particular, for those companies having transactions with many related parties overseas, all MNEs are private groups which do not want to share financial information with overseas government. In such case, the Chinese affiliates may say in the local files that the overseas financials may be provided to the tax authorities upon request. For example, during transfer pricing audit. Another typical comment by the tax authorities in China is the value chain analysis in local file is not. Sophisticated enough. In this regard, the Chinese affiliates are always expected to use value chain analysis to verify whether the transfer pricing method used by MNEs generate fair and reasonable results in China. From my point of view, however, asking taxpayers to have a detailed and complete value chain analysis in place for local file will place too much burden on taxpayers because, according to the TP regulations. Assessing the arm's length nature of the related party transactions should be based on specified TP methods instead of value chain analysis. 
Yeah, talking about the transfer pricing methods, the China SAT released new rules on the transfer pricing methods and transfer pricing investigation in March 2017, uh, which is the SAT Public Notice 6, or we call Circular 6. What are its major impacts on multinational groups, particularly for those under TP audits? Well, simply, I believe the transfer pricing investigation risks as well as adjustment risks increase under Circular 6. Firstly, Circular 6 empowers the Chinese tax authorities to collect financial information of overseas related parties during the transfer pricing audit. If the MNEs fail to provide such information, the tax authority can use so-called the DEEM approach to make simple transfer pricing assessment on the Chinese affiliate. Secondly, the Chinese tax authorities become more aggressive in scrutinizing and making assessment on the outbound remittance transactions, the transactions of royalty and service fee paid by the Chinese affiliates. More specifically, the Chinese tax authorities will not only look at the arm's length nature of the service fee and royalty transactions, but also question the substance of the overseas IP owner or service provider. If the overseas rate parties do not have enough substance, the Chinese tax authority may simply deny the deductibility of the relevant expenses, even though the taxpayers in China can prove the amount of royalty and service fee is arm's length. Lastly, the Chinese tax authorities take a different view from the OECD countries in interpretation of arm's length principle. Use services as an example. When the tax authorities review the intra-group services arrangement, they take the position that finance, tax, etc., or legal activities cannot qualify the services charge if such activities are for the monitoring, control, and compliance purpose of the group. Also, by arguing that the Chinese market is different and taxpayers should analyze local specific advantages, China posed special difficulty on MNEs who would like to implement the consistent TP policy around the world for royalty and intergroup services transactions. Yeah, as you said, the transfer pricing risks have actually increased. Then on the flip side, do you think the dispute resolution mechanisms, such as the mutual agreement procedures, aka MAP, and advanced pricing arrangements, or APA, are efficient in China? Well, my answer is yes and no. I do believe Circular 6 improved the MAP mechanism because for the first time it mentions that tax could be refunded in China as a result of MAP for TP-related corresponding adjustment. Of course, we still need time to observe whether the Chinese company authorities would be more flexible to discuss tax refund in China. Also, based on the 2016 statistics, China spent more resources to expedite MAP cases. For MAP cases started before January 2016, the average time taken for transfer pricing cases was roughly 33 months longer than the average of 26 months for other non-TP cases. In comparison, the average time taken has been significantly shortened for cases started after 1st January 2016. On overall basis, the average time taken was 22 months for all cases. It should be pointed out that BAPS Action 14 established the peer review process for MAP cases in order to review and monitor the implementation of the minimum standard by each of the countries. This measure helps to accelerate the conclusion of ongoing cases. According to the BAPS Action 14 peer review timetable, China is scheduled in the last batch and its MAP 
work will be reviewed by December 2018. I expect that China's peer review results would be better than the average of all the participating countries. For APA, however, it is observed that the progress on bilateral APA process is still slow considering the huge demand of MNE who would like to achieve tax certainty through APA application versus extremely limited resources at the SAT level. The new APA rules released in 2016, i.e. SAT Public Notice 64, gave Chinese tax authorities more power to screen APA requests by the taxpayers even before the pre-filing meeting. Then how can multinational groups manage the China transfer pricing uncertainties in the post-BAPS era? I would like to talk about from two angles. From the compliance and MNEs do take swift actions to dismantle the so-called aggressive tax scheme. For example, the offshore structure with the principal setup in the low tax rate jurisdiction considering such structure is not sustainable with the exchange of CVCI information. From the planning end, however, I believe there's still a lot of opportunities for the MNEs to further optimize the tax and business structure given the recent tax reform in U.S. and also in other countries, the international competition for fiscal revenue and the business upgrade. For example, patent box regime and other tax incentives for R&D, for treasury and headquarters functions. Also, we observe an increasing M&A activities and business relocation and transformation cases where M&Es move their manufacturing functions for cost-saving reasons within and out of the APAC region. Management needs to consider agile transfer pricing setup as managing transfer pricing risks in the APAC region will be much more complicated comparing to the OECD countries. Since quite a few jurisdictions in this region have divergent views to interpret arm's length principle, and some countries require local comparables when conducting benchmark analysis. That's a good point. It seems that both uh, tax authorities and uh, taxpayers are dealing with uncertainties uh, following the BAPS initiatives. Going forward, would you please give us some insights of the possible 2018 development of the China transfer pricing environment? Sure. I do not expect SAT will issue new major transfer pricing rules in 2018. Nevertheless, the Chinese tax authorities will continue enhancing transfer pricing enforcement in 2018 and going forward. To be specific, the tax authorities will launch technology-based approach to monitor the profitability of the entities with higher transfer pricing risks and perform big data analysis to select transfer pricing audit target. For example, the tax authorities in Jiangsu province have set up proprietary database earlier this year for transfer pricing administration, and the SAT encouraged the other major tax authorities in China to follow Jiangsu's approach. Since the SAT encouraged the other major tax authorities in China to follow Jiangsu's approach, the SAT further beefs up the resources at the central level for national audit. I anticipate that there will be more national or regional audits in China, focusing on the key industries such as automotive and auto parts, retail, restaurant, and consumer product sectors. Outbound service fee and royalty payment will still be the audit target and audit focus. For the Chinese enterprises, it should be noted that the SAT will complete the first round of exchange of CBCI information with France, Germany, and UK this year. As said earlier, 
more MNEs may involve their transfer pricing arrangement, including IP migration and value chain optimization in response to the business transformation and tax reform in U.S. and other countries. Thanks, Paul, for your insights. Um, while there are quite many developments in China in the post-BEPS era, another pivotal development is happening in Hong Kong in the meantime. On December 29, 2017, an amendment bill was released by Hong Kong to codify transfer pricing rules into its domestic tax law. Our Hong Kong transfer pricing partner, Cecilia, is closely following this new amendment bill and would give us an update on its impact to the multinational groups. Cecilia, following the amendment bill, what important points should Hong Kong taxpayers be aware of? Thank you, Marjorie. Well, indeed, Hong Kong is going through monumental changes in um, in its tax and transfer pricing because in Hong Kong, um, we have never had any uh, big, significant, you know, tax amendment bill, and this one is the longest ever in Hong Kong history. There's a total of 162 pages in this draft bill. Um, a majority of that actually covers transfer pricing, but there are also other tax-related, corporate tax-related provisions in there. And I think, you know, as we all understand the global environment, this is also an initiative following the BEPS Action 13, you know, which basically calls the government to actually, you know, take a new look at its uh, current framework. Because in Hong Kong, um, currently the transfer pricing regulation is actually not quite a law, although it has been actively used and practiced. This uh, bill, when it is passed, it actually will codify transfer pricing into the law. So it definitely will rise the level of authority of transfer pricing regulations. Now, I have been actually very lucky. Um, in representing PwC and lobbying with the Legislative Council in Hong Kong as we are going through this law-making process very publicly. And um, actually, I attended the hearing representing uh, our firm to indicate our comments. One thing that is very interesting to note is that the lobbying, you know, actually did seem to show some impact because we actually have gone through, uh, you know, around four or five LegCo meetings, some of which we were, uh, you know, present, one of which we were present, and then there are four more to go. And we already are seeing some changes in the provisions in the law. So things are still being shaken out. Um, we don't know exactly where the threshold will land and, you know, uh, whether some other provisions will change. But by and large, I think, you know, we can see that the government, you know, is taking into account some of the business communities comments. So, for example, the initial, uh, you know, amendment bill, the 162 pages bill that came out in December actually went beyond the BEPS minimum standard, um, even though the government initially indicated it was going to try to abide by the minimum standard. In fact, many of our clients were quite shocked by some of the provisions in there. You know, let me just name a few examples. For example, uh, Hong Kong tax rate is relatively lower than many other jurisdictions around us in Asia. It is at 16.5%. And, um, you know, there are domestic transactions between Hong Kong companies, and the initial transfer pricing uh, documentation requirements actually cover all domestic transactions. So meaning even if the profits are going from the left pocket to the right pocket of the government, they still have to do very lengthy transfer pricing documentation. And when it comes to transfer pricing documentation, you know, it actually initially also started with a relatively low threshold, meaning even very, very small companies would also have to do 
do just as much documentation as much bigger multinational companies. So um, these are really you know, some of the provisions that is triggering a, a very you know, very loud noises by us and then also by the electrical members who actually also petitioned very strongly. Another example of how the Hong Kong draft bill went beyond the minimum standard is that it actually has a very heavy focus on DMP functions, which is fine, which is also very consistent with BEPS. However, it also includes a deeming provision, which allows the Hong Kong government to potentially, from a very unilateral standpoint, just deem a higher level of profits and then assess tax on it without regard to any kind of corresponding relief which the company may not get or without, you know, granting any kind of, um, you know, added relief to the company. So this, in fact, could result in double taxation for these companies. So throughout the lobbying process, the government has now, you know, made some changes in its threshold and also in delaying the uh, introduction of some of these deeming provision and other things. Overall, I think, Another thing that is quite interesting to know is, in fact, we all ask and our clients ask, why is the Hong Kong government so strict? Because typically Hong Kong is being seen as a tax-friendly business community, right? So what's going on? In fact, the, the Financial Services and Treasury Bureau, the FSTB, uh, has mentioned multiple times in these electrical meetings is that it actually wants to make sure, make real sure that it sustains the, uh, the EU peer review and that it will not face any sanctions or get on any kind of grade list because of its lower tax rate. Um, and also because Hong Kong has a territorial tax regime, so certain profits could be considered as offshore and not subject to Hong Kong tax. So you can see actually the Hong Kong government is actually very nervous that it may actually be sanctioned by the EU and it really would affect the business community and therefore it kind of throws such a heavy, you know, uh, strict requirements, you know, in the law. But we'll have to see how things shake out. I think, you know, by and large, I think one thing to expect is that there will definitely be mandatory transfer pricing documentation requirements. So very much like uh, other FEPs, you know, compliant jurisdiction, Hong Kong will introduce three-tier transfer pricing documentation requirements with the master file, local file, and the CPCR, country by country report. And the applicable tax years of this will actually start from what we call the year of assessment, 1819. So basically, it's tax year starting from April 1st, 2018. Thank you, Cecilia. This is very helpful. And it seems that among all those important rules and uh, probably many of them um, may be beyond the BAPS standards, Hong Kong taxpayers may need to take immediate actions on their transfer pricing compliance obligations coming very soon. And would you please explain them with more details, like the thresholds, timelines, um, non-compliance penalties for the master file and local file? Sure, sure. So interestingly, all of what you just mentioned, Marjorie, is still a moving target, but I think it's moving to the benefit of the uh, of the taxpayers. So for example, on the threshold, um, there are basically two considerations on the threshold. One is a size-based threshold, and the other is a volume-based threshold. So the size-based threshold basically, you know, say that if you are a small size company and if you actually can meet two of the three criteria, namely that criteria related to total revenue of the company, uh, the total asset amount of the company, and total headcount of the company. So if you can actually meet two of those 
three conditions and not be a big enough company, in other words, that you could be exempted from any transfer pricing documentation, even though you still have to abide by the transfer pricing rules. Now, uh, you notice I haven't mentioned anything about what expected specifically on the threshold because that is still moving. Um, as of two weeks ago, the threshold once again actually uh, increased. So we would expect, you know, to know hopefully by uh, by June uh, when, you know, where the threshold would eventually be. But nonetheless, I think that's one thing to keep in mind. The second condition to consider is the volume, and the volume basically focuses on only related party transaction volume. Uh, for example, if you have, uh, you know, a certain amount of tangible buy-sell uh, and also intangible property transfer or financial services transfer or uh, intercompany interest or services income, uh, then you would have to prepare transfer pricing documentation. The threshold at the moment are very closely aligned with the requirements actually in China, so that helps. In terms of the timelines, this also moved, which is uh, moving towards, again, a more positive note for taxpayers. Initially, the proposed amendment bill actually would require taxpayers to have these master file and local files prepared even before the tax return is due, and that's quite unreasonable. We petitioned hard. The government now actually proposed to actually align the date of the master file and the local file to the date of the tax return preparation. So again, we'll have to see how things shake out at the end, but I think these are all helpful news for um, you know multinational companies to keep in mind as they have to prepare for transfer pricing requirements in Hong Kong as well. Thank you. And then how about country-by-country country reports? What do multinational groups need to do to fulfill their new Hong Kong obligations? Yes, so Hong Kong actually largely follows the requirements when it comes to country-by-country country reports. And uh, basically, if the ultimate parent company is a Hong Kong company, then it would be required to prepare country-by-country country report if its uh, revenue actually exceeds Hong Kong dollars 6.8 billion, which is equivalent to the 750 million euros revenue. And I think one important thing to note is that there is a penalty, uh, you know, of uh, not, not filing uh, these CBCR or not complying. And there is actually a somewhat uh, scary penalty, which is a more criminal uh, penalty uh, that if the taxpayer's CBCR is eventually found to be uh, fraudulent, then effectively the director of the company or and in fact us as well, the, prov uh, the service provider could fail uh, jail sentence, uh, which is a pretty scary thing. And we don't hope for that to happen to any of our clients or ourselves indeed, but Hong Kong does have a pretty strict uh, requirements when it comes to the penalty, you know, if it's a serious situation uh, when it comes to fraudulent preparation of the CBCR. Yeah, that, that sounds clear. And do you have maybe any final takeaways for our Hong Kong taxpayers? Yes, I think one thing to keep in mind, maybe if I could add a couple comments on the CBCR is that similar to China, I think today the exchange mechanism exists, but it hasn't quite matured. So as of today, Hong Kong has actually made bilateral exchange arrangements only with four jurisdictions, and that is France, Ireland, South Africa, and the UK. And there are many other ongoing discussions in terms of expanding this mechanism. Actually, one of the big holdup, in fact, is because Hong Kong 
is not a, a country per se, because it's a special region, a part of China. So in terms of its administration, it actually does have to go through China to actually seek the final enforcement of the MCAA, and that's why Hong Kong's um, number of countries with which we can exchange this CBCR is still very limited. So the government is telling me that it is waiting for China as well, so that's one interesting to note. But we do expect that to continue to increase. Now, another thing is Hong Kong also adopts a secondary mechanism for filing CBCR, which means that Hong Kong has the right to ask for local submission of uh, foreign countries CBCR if the you know in international you know, EOI information exchange fails. But so far, there's still not a lot of detailed implementation as to how Hong Kong is going to go about with it as well. So key takeaways for companies, I think just like many other countries or companies are facing, we have to be very mindful that the law is coming. It will pass very soon, and Hong Kong mandatory transfer pricing requirements will come and actually affect our current tax year already, the tax year of 1819. The other thing to keep in mind is uh, Hong Kong definitely focuses a lot more on DEMPI functions when it comes to intangible properties. We see actually a number of companies starting to consider restructuring their principal company. In fact, uh, the principal company structure may initially uh, rest with Singapore or Switzerland, but their actual substance actually may be in Hong Kong closer to China. So we are seeing companies considering moving the principal company structure to Hong Kong. And that I think is a good opportunity for companies to think about how to do it and how to do it to, to be more aligned with the overall BAPS initiative. Obviously, the Hong Kong IRD has also stepped up its resources and has already opened more transfer pricing audit cases. So I think, again, we should continue to try to take a strategic and defensive approach when it comes to planning for its business model and also thinking about how to keep a proper support and documentation for its transfer pricing model. So I think there's a lot of exciting moments to come, Marjorie. Thank you, Cecilia and Paul, for your sharing. Now I will hand over back to Dana. Great. Thank you, Cecilia, Paul, and Marjorie. And thank you to everyone who listened to this episode. If you would like further information about this topic, please email the participants whose email addresses can be found in the description of this episode.